trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. I've got some great information to share with you today. Going to get to it in just a moment. want to thank my sponsors, HSL Ammo and also Monticello College, Life Saving Food, and Garage Door Pros. Now, being the thoughtful host that I am, I also have included links to each one of these sponsors in my daily show notes. You can access them at thebrianhideshow.com. In fact, I would encourage you, subscribe. Go ahead and sign up. Just give me your email address. I will drop a copy of my show notes into your email inbox each and every day that I do this program. You'll find some good reading, some good thought-provoking stuff. And, of course, this comes with the understanding you have no implicit or otherwise, you know, um, explicit duty to agree with me. You don't have to. What you do with this information, that's totally up to you. I trust you to make the right choices. I'm just trying to put some different information out there that hopefully provides a broader perspective than what you had before. So with that in mind, I want to share something with you that that popped up yesterday— I've been thinking a little bit about the Bundy trial just because uh, a good friend that I met down there at the federal courthouse, he was he was there to support the Bundys, uh, a guy by the name of Joe Reno. I got word yesterday that Joe had passed away. Joe had uh, moved back to the Philippines where he had been living for some time uh, a couple of years ago. Super nice, down to earth guy. So I want to give a quick uh, homage and, and, uh, you know, recognition of him. But there was another couple of individuals that were, were associated with, you know, the, the Bunkerville event and, and trials, Eric Parker being one of them. And on a message board that, uh, that I follow where Eric is a member, someone had shared this and I was like, man, this is, this is really solid information. I think there may be someone who can relate to what this person is trying to, to say. And I don't know who the author of this is. This, this was shared by another one of the, the Bundy defendants, and so it's just, it's kind of making the rounds, but tell me if this doesn't ring true. It starts out with a simple observation. Cognitive dissonance is a bitch. Sorry, that's, that's their words. To all my friends out there who know what's really going on, to all my conspiracy theorist friends, yes, sometimes it's a curse and not always a blessing to be awake. Awakening is the most liberating, alienating, excruciating, empowering, lonely, confusing, freeing, frightening, expansive journey. If you find yourself struggling as you try to process all this insanity, you are not alone. No one talks about the darkness that accompanies awakening or the grief, not only grieving the life and illusions you once had, but the realization that almost everything you thought you once knew is a lie. The beliefs you've held, people you've trusted, principles you were taught, all lies. Shattering illusions is rarely an enjoyable experience. There's a considerable amount of discomfort that comes with growth, and the grieving process doesn't stop there. With these newfound realizations, you then find yourself grieving all over again, grieving for our children, knowing all too well the broken world that they're inheriting, grieving the loss of many relationships with people who just don't get it, feeling alone, being ridiculed and shamed, not only by the masses, but but for many of you, your very own family and friends, too. Feeling like you no longer have much in common with the people you're surrounded by. 
struggling with carrying on BS, shallow conversations that lack substance with those that are still fast asleep. Even feeling disconnected from your entire support system because they can't see what you see. Some even grieve the loss of their ignorance because ignorance is bliss and reality is harsh. Awakening can be a lonely road and you'll often find yourself journeying alone. So there's no way to sugarcoat it. Awakening to the realities of this world is brutal. It will have you running through the entire gamut of human emotions. You have to master the art of diving down the darkest of rabbit holes, only to come out and still function in daily life. And that's a skill people don't talk about much. Some of you are still struggling with feeling disconnected from family and friends. It's as though they exist in another world. Please know that you are not alone. And not only are you not alone, you have an entire tribe standing with you. We may be separated by miles, but we are deeply connected in purpose and spirit. I don't know why that one hit me so hard, but as I read that, I thought, wow, that, that's a really good description. That whole gamut of emotions that a person feels when they really start to become aware. Uh, there's, there's a phrase that some of you will recognize, others won't, but it's awakening to our awful situation. And it's true. It's incredibly discouraging, especially when you see things that other people not only can't see, but I think the more discouraging part is when, when there are things that you recognize that other people actively refuse to see. They're just not ready to confront, you know, that reality. And it's understandable, right? Because it's, you know, this is unpleasant. This is part of that growth process. This is where... You have to learn, wow, there was a lot of stuff that they taught us as kids and that we grew up believing that just doesn't hold water. But that last part, let that part sink in and, and know this. Really, you are not alone. I think uh, what, what hit me the most as I, as I read this was, this is what I'm trying to get out there to people who have, have awakened, whether recently or have you been awake for a long time. You probably understand this better than most. And there's no doubt you have felt completely isolated and alone at various times. But you're not alone. And, and, and I love the idea that we, we may be few in number, but the purpose that connects us, it's real. And it matters. And I like that uh, connected in purpose and in spirit. I think about my friend Joe Reno and, and many of the other people that I met who were down there supporting the Bundys at their trial five years ago in Las Vegas. And there was definitely a sense of, of spirit and purpose that connected them. They came from all different walks of life. There were people who were very well off. There were people who were very humble. But they loved freedom. They loved liberty. They loved the concept of authentic justice. And most importantly, they were not content to just sit by and say, oh, well, you know, as somebody else was being uh, railroaded. So I hope you can find some comfort in that. I did. As I, as I read that, I just was like, man, that, uh, that, is, that is really reassuring. And I hope that to some degree, that's what you get each day when you tune into this show. I know I have plenty of bad news. Trust me. You know, there, nobody recognizes the bad news as, as thoroughly as I do because I sit there and I agonize over, okay, I think this is important. You know, the world is, is rushing for an economic reset and a monetary reset and there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. World War III looks like it's, you know, very uh, likely to kick off in, in the near future. Those are daunting challenges. 
And, and any rational person would be like, oh, oh, it's too much. It's, it's overwhelming. But that's the world we live in. And acknowledging the reality and then choosing to live and to react as a good, solid, freedom-loving, God-fearing person would react, that's the challenge. But the point is, you're, you're going to be alone. A lot of the time, you're going to feel like you are completely standing out there on your own. I just want to reaffirm that, you know, if you feel that calling to, to stand up and to be counted and to be true to what you know, it's scary. It's hard when the crowd is mocking you or otherwise, you know, taking joy in whatever suffering or pain you may be going through at the moment. But you are definitely not alone. I'm on your side and there are countless others that you don't see that likewise are striving with you. Maybe if you can just find a few quiet moments every so often, you can feel the prayers of those who truly love liberty and are reaching out, you know, appealing to God, appealing to the author of liberty to be there in our moment of need. And I guess it's kind of fitting in, in, in a way because as I look back at what happened to the Bundy family, that was the one constant through that entire situation from the, you know, the impounding of their cattle to the standoff in Bunkerville to the occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon to the trials and, you know, the arrests and all of the abuse, the two years almost that they sat in prison. The Bundys put their faith in God. They never wavered. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't suffer. You notice that? They, they suffered a lot. But because they put their faith in God, because they humbled themselves and were willing to suffer, he delivered them. And I'm telling you this because I witnessed it firsthand. I had a front row seat to see it happen. And I didn't, and, and I need you to know, I didn't believe that it was going to happen. In fact, I was a doubter. I thought there's no way, you know, there's just too much. They're, they're up against. So I didn't think that they had done anything wrong, but I didn't think that they were going to be free men, any of them. And yet here they are today, you know, as free as can be. I have a good sense that uh, it wasn't their own doing other than they put their faith in the author of liberty and the author of liberty delivered them. Now, there's a lesson in there for you and I. I'll let you ponder that on your own as to, well, what does that mean for me? All right, stay with me. I've got some great stuff to share with you just the other side of this break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to my friends at GarageDoorProServices.com. They are one of my sponsors and I just, I appreciate them. I'm happy to give their message to you, especially if you live in St. George or Cedar City or Mesquite or Colorado City. If you are in that little Southwest Utah corner and uh, you have a need of, of either residential or commercial garage doors, these are the folks you want to call for installation, service, and repair. By the way, their garage doors are made in America. I know that matters for some people and their response is quick. They have much faster lead time than other companies can give you. Call them at 435-525-2773 or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. 
I used to argue a lot on the internet. I know, I know. I used to argue a lot on the radio too. And and it was fun. And you know what? It always seems to draw an audience. I don't know. It's just like a street fight has people standing around chanting world star, you know, and filming it on their phones. Yeah. Good argument either online or, you know, on the air always seemed to draw a good crowd, but it wasn't ever productive. And so I, I know that talking with people who are uh, particularly woke without getting drawn into an argument, that can be incredibly challenging. I've got a great article here from Mark Bauerlein with some excellent advice on how to talk to a wokester. This is from AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. He says, if you're invited to a friend's house for Thanksgiving dinner and his daughter shows up and starts talking about America's genocide of Native Americans, what do you say? Or if you're in a discussion of classical education with other parents from your neighborhood and someone comments that classical education has a curriculum that lacks diversity and flirts with white privilege, how do you respond? See, these are standard woke gestures. They're commonplace. They're unsurprising. The language is always the same. The charge is familiar. People voice them with a script set or a set script in their heads, one they've heard a thousand times in classrooms, on talk shows, in social media. Now, that hasn't made them less difficult to answer, though. Our woke interlocutor has a point to make, an objection to raise, and more than that, she has indignation in her delivery, too. Maybe a little outrage. Occasionally, she verges on a tantrum. The historical contention is one thing. The moral fervor, another, because it intensifies the exchange. What was a conversation has become a trial. She's put your conscience in the dock. Are you a bad person who perpetuates injustice, or are you a good person out to end it? Now, it sounds like a trivial occasion, but it's really not. It happens too often not to be important. Woke attitudes have spread too widely for conservatives to avoid it. Not long ago, talk of privilege and patriarchy and transphobia would have puzzled most Americans. But now it echoes everywhere, in public and private and professional life. The choice a conservative faces on those occasions doesn't depend on the truth of things. It's a social matter, a crossroads. Do I speak my mind and annoy the present company or just nod and move on? Now, the effect of wokesters pushes you toward the second option. They speak forcefully, haughtily. They may not know much about the founding, but they know the founders owned slaves, and that's enough. They can't name the U.S. presidents in order, but they know that none of them was a woman. Although with the latest uh, trans ideology, we may have to revisit that. Just, just saying. They can't, uh, or they haven't read news reports on the current chaos at the border, but all Americans are immigrants, they insist. These convictions put them on moral high ground. They're also, they also please the person who holds those opinions. Indignation can feel awfully good, especially when wokesters can fire it, as an adversary, fire it at an adversary and watch him squirm. People conscious of others' feelings or raised, raised with bourgeois manners find the effect hard to overcome because they, over, they don't want to offend. He says, I've seen conservatives reply to woke objections with a modest offering of facts that undo the woke narrative and get nowhere. They don't match the indignation of the wokester with a defensiveness of similar intensity, so their facts lack authority. To say that in 1800, slavery existed all over the world, so we should stop treating the American practice as an unusual abomination, does nothing to lessen the blameworthiness of the American South. Noting that the absence of female leaders in ancient times may have something to do with the duties of a king back then to command an army in the field at any time has no persuasive power. Appeals to nature are hollow. It's a losing game. So his advice is, save your breath. 
Don't try to argue. Don't defend. Mark Bauerlein says, The wokester is strong on belief and weak on knowledge, no matter how much she thinks she knows the real history of things. To be woke is precisely this claim of superior knowledge, a keener awareness than those still unwoke, asleep in their illusions of, say, American greatness. Knowing they possess the truth, wokesters have the blessing of moral courage, the dedication to speak truth to power. It gives them a noble role to play in the correction of the historical record, and there lies the weak spot of the, weak, of the woke brigade, the pretension to moral superiority through better knowledge. They believe they have better hearts because they have better minds. And that's an assumption that easily collapses. It points the way to a different response than argument. He says, instead of challenging the wokester's knowledge, let's go with the wokester's knowledge and draw it out. Let her school us. Let let her show us her certainty and let's accept her duty to instruct the ignorant. She wants to be a pedagogue. We shall accept the position of pupil. Now, that's not just rolling over and playing dead, because listen to what he advises next. The model is Socrates, who comes to many dialogues as one who knows nothing and desires enlightenment. He asks simple questions and listens closely to the answers. The other participants believe they grasp the truth firmly, but as his queries continue, their confidence begins to wane. They speak first as ordinary folk who nonetheless possess common knowledge or as experts in a subject, such as Ion the Rhapsode on the topic topic, of Homer. They're complacent until the dialectic leads them to acknowledge their error. Mark Bauerlein says, take the same approach with the wokester. If she brings up the Native American issue, ask her, in all innocence, why those cavalry officers were often flanked by Native scouts helping them track down other tribes. If she berates the founders as hypocrites, ask why Thomas Jefferson penned a document that became a rallying cry for civil rights forever after. Why would he do that? If she brings up the absence of female rulers in the old days, ask what would happen to a kingdom if it were threatened by a neighbor and the ruler were eight months pregnant. If she objects to Western civilization as white supremacy, ask her to describe the whiteness of Beethoven's Ninth. Or ask her if she wants her children to read Hamlet, tour the National Gallery, and study the architecture of the Acropolis and the Pantheon. If America is shot through with, the, with systemic racism, you can say, why do so many people of color keep scrambling to come here? Really, why? And ask those spirits, or ask those questions rather, in a spirit of education. The wokester has taken the podium. She can't not answer. Her shtick is to catechize and berate, so give her the chance to amplify her contentions. The spread of woke knowledge should satisfy her, as should your willingness to be awokened. What could be better than a willing student, an open mind? Now, Mark Bauerlein says, What you will uncover, of course, displeases her more than your expected resistance. The knowledge she presumes will soon appear to come in small packages, biased and uncontextualized. She hasn't listened to Beethoven's Ninth or read Hamlet and can't distinguish a Renaissance work of art from one created in the Romantic period and goes blank at the mention of the Acropolis rather, and the uh, Pantheon. In truth, wokeness doesn't appeal to her intelligence and never did. It just flattered her ego. Now faced with questions directly related to what she's just stated, the certitude crumbles and the ego collapses. You've asked her for knowledge and she hasn't replied. She can't. Now, he says, you've won. 
It's time to hum a few bars of Beethoven, mouth some words of Polonius, praise the dimensions of Greek columns, and detail what the Comanches did to their neighbors and see if she's ready to listen. I think the only place where I might uh, might differ with him a little is the idea that somebody's got to win. I do like the idea, though, of asking questions, that Socratic dialogue, but I think they should be asked in a spirit of love. And I think that when someone does come to the realization that uh, they are running on fumes as far as their depth of knowledge goes, be kind to them. And I say that because someone was probably kind to you at some point on your journey of gaining knowledge. It might be time to return that favor and help someone else see the light gently. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here, since it is uh, Preparedness Month, September being National Preparedness Month, I would want you to know that lifesavingfood.com, which is one of my sponsors, is offering a 30% discount on a number of their items. And you should probably check this out. You can go to the website. It's included in my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't know if there's ever been a more important time to be more self-reliant, to be more prepared for whatever's coming. But I know there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I think this is a good way to put yourself on solid ground and, and understand. You can't prepare for every everything. You know, I mean, a meteor could strike. You, there's no way to be perfectly 100% sure that uh, you are prepared for every little thing that could come up. But there's a lot we can and should do. So I have a sponsor that will help you with that. Maybe you should take advantage of that. All right, moving on. Watching the farmers in Europe being systematically regulated out of producing food. And by the way, you notice the mainstream media isn't covering their protests at all? You have to really know where to shop around for information to find reports on these protests. But this is some of the strongest evidence yet that the climate change movement is anti-human at its heart. I've got a great essay here from Joel Kotkin explaining why environmentalism is a fundamentalist religion. Yeah. Joel Kotkin says, Today's climate activists resemble nothing so much as a religious movement with carbon, the new devil's spawn. He says the green movement is increasingly wedded to a kind of carbon fundamentalism that's not only not realistic, but will reduce living standards in the West and around the world. And as with other kinds of religious fundamentalism, the climate hysteria is often overwrought and obviously so. A decade ago, the same activist predicted a planetary disaster by 2020 if the U.S. and China did not reduce their emissions by 80%, which, of course, never happened. Their approach, or this approach, rather, is a losing one that reduces the effectiveness of the green lobby. He says what's needed to combat climate change is a pragmatic approach based on adapting to real and verifiable dangers. And this starts with environmentalists acknowledge, uh, acknowledging rather that the limits of our ability to curb emissions in the short run, what they really are. Now, that's not to seed the fight. He says the reality is what we do in the West means increasingly little. This is because today's biggest emitters come from China, which already emits more GHC, I guess that's uh, what greenhouse gases, than the U.S. and the EU combined while the fast growth in emissions comes increasingly from developing countries like India, 
now the world's third largest emitter. These countries have developed a habit of blaming climate change on the West, then openly seeking to exempt themselves from net zero and other green goals. And the West's penchant for hyper-focusing on our own state or national emissions misses the reality where the future problems are actually concentrated. Now, he says, we aren't just missing the forest for the trees. Under the Green Lobby's current policies, our war against climate change is doomed to make things worse for most people. Creating what economist Isabel Schnabel calls greenflation, higher prices for energy and food, worsened further by the war in Ukraine, are already forcing countries to adopt massive subsidies for food and gas. In the developing world, billions now face immiseration, malnutrition, or starvation. And green targets of zero emissions only make this situation worse. Residents of rich countries will also suffer from the rapid adoption of current green policies that are focused almost entirely on wind and solar. Germany, for example, suffered the highest electricity prices in the world before Russia's war in Ukraine. In California, residents pay up to 80% above the national average for power. Reliance on wind power has made even Texas's grid, un- Texas's grid vulnerable, rather. So the real winners from the green policies aren't the birds and the bees, but the tech oligarchs, the uncompetitive U.S. auto industry, and Wall Street. Given our limited ability to meaningfully reduce emissions, he says more attention should be placed on adapting. That's something we're actually good at. Since the beginning of the modern era, technology and science have been employed successfully to changes in temperature and precipitation. In the 1700s, people dealt with a colder climate by planting potatoes, which thrive in cooler weather. They also learned how to use water power, wind, and most critically, fossil fuels, which made life bearable in the icy cities of the north and later with air conditioning in the brutally hot south. The Netherlands, where catastrophic flooding in the 16th century prompted an extensive expansion of coastal berms to prevent future floods, represents a classic example of successful adaptation. I mean, the Dutch even profited from rising sea levels by opening new farmlands and expanding their exports to the global economy. So climate change was thus turned into a net plus. Now, constructing proper adaptive policies may not be as emotionally satisfying as screaming about climate criminals, but it could prove far less damaging to the masses of people and to the future of democracies. A regime run by the climatistas is likely to be very authoritarian, with many seeing in the COVID-19 lockdowns a test run for top-down edicts over how people live. In a sign of things to come, Switzerland is considering jail terms for those who try to stay too warm this winter. That's legit, by the way. There are links to, to each one of these claims, so you can check it out for yourself. So for us to make progress on climate, the environmental movement needs to give up utopian fantasies. That's according to Ted Nordhaus, a longtime California environmentalist, and he says it needs to make its peace with modernity and technology. Instead of placing all bets on fundamentally intermittent, unreliable, and economically problematic solar and wind energy, we should focus more on other options, from nuclear power to hydroelectric generation to continuing to replace coal with abundant, cleaner natural gas. Joel Kotkin says a smart adaptive policy would start with a serious assessment of costs and risks. If our worry is rising ocean levels, well, we might want to look into duplicating the seawall like the one that's protected the Texas port of Galveston for the past century. 
A gradual shift to more energy-efficient vehicles, not just electric cars, would allow for competition from other new technologies like hydrogen, recycled gas, and hybrids. Investment in a more decentralized power system, desalination plants, and better storage of water could also help alleviate damage often traced to climate change. Nothing short of the stability of the, politi- of the global political economy is at stake. And Joel Kotkin concludes by saying, where climate hysteria promises only gloom, cat class conflict, and an ever-increasing repression, an adaptation scenario allows humans to adjust to a warming world even as we work to bring down emissions. Adaptation gives us a way of addressing climate change while retaining prosperity, creating opportunities, and showing that rather than wage a scorched earth policy to save Gaia, we can learn to instead work within its limits. Now, Joel Kotkin is a presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University. He's the executive director of the Urban Reform Institute. And I think he's right about a lot of this. By the way, I do disagree with him on the idea that, well, the, the, the globe is warming, the earth is warming. You notice we, we've gone from global warming to climate change. And frankly, one of my favorite sources of information on, uh, on space weather as well as our own climate is a YouTube channel called Suspicious Observers. Now, this is an actual, like legitimate, authentic scientist who explains how the sun affects the climate of every single planet within our solar system. It's not just Earth. The sun affects the climate on Mars and on Venus and Jupiter and so forth. And by the way, what we're experiencing right now, yeah, there is climate change that's happening. But Ben, the scientist I'm talking about is Suspicious Observers, makes a very strong case that what's happening here is part of a, nat- a natural solar cycle, roughly 12,000 years in length. His prediction is it's not global warming you've got to be prepared for. We've got to be prepared for another little ice age that is coming our way. Because we are experiencing some, some very noticeable changes. One of the things that comes with that 12,000-year cycle... I don't mean to scare anybody, is a polar shift. In other words, the North and South Poles are going to flip. And they're going to end up in different locations than they currently are. Actually, if if you do any navigation, you already understand. The North Pole is migrating and has been for some time. But when those poles shift, it will have very dramatic impact on the Earth. How dramatic? Well, I don't know. How how scared do you want to be? Here, come walk with me and I'll tell you, you know, some of the things that could happen. I'll put it this way. When archaeologists and, and when people who are, uh, you know, paleontologists are searching to, to find, you know, history from dinosaurs and things like that, sometimes they will find mastodons still with flowers in their mouths from where they were eating who were killed so suddenly and, and so quickly that there was just, there was no time for them to do anything. And that portends something like, you know, what happened? Was it, uh, you know, a 500-foot tidal wave that hit them? Was it 300-mile-an-hour winds? Nobody can say for sure, but it's pretty, pretty clear that when those magnetic poles flip, there's some crustal shift that takes place on the Earth's surface, and it's, it's pretty dramatic. Now, these are not extinction events, at least not for everybody. But it's part of a natural cycle, and that's the part I'm asking people to consider. Again, suspicious observers on YouTube. I think you'd find it well worth your time to watch a few of his videos. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank HSLAmmo.com for being one of my sponsors. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington. He provides, I think, a very useful product. Because the way you gain skill at arms is to go out and practice. Ammunition is a way of turning your money into skill. And that skill, once acquired and maintained, it's yours. You, you keep it. You know, it's not something, well, it's going to spoil. You can, uh, you can lose your edge. You can become a little bit rusty. But, uh, man, skills are a great investment in your own future. Once you have learned something and really learned it, you own it. Again, that's HSLAmmo.com. So a couple quick things I want to mention. These are articles that I'm including in today's show notes. Got a great one here from a substat called Helen of Destroy. <laughs> That's a catchy name. They hated us for our freedoms, so we enslaved ourselves. They said fascism would come again wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross, but instead it's wrapped in a lab coat and carrying a syringe. And this is a very good recounting of all the ways that we have enslaved ourselves because people in power hated our freedom. It's very detailed. It'll uh, it'll probably take you a fair amount of time to read through this essay. I think it's worth your time, though. And it seems to be very well researched and and I think has a, has a good grasp of what's happening. So there's one article I'm going to recommend for you. I've got another one here from the Good Citizen Substack. If you haven't subscribed to this, you really should. This is about the Great Financial Reset. Back to a world of neo-feudalism with sovereigns and commons. One thing I love about the Good Citizen is this is very solid information. It's well-researched, it's well-vetted, but it's also presented with some some wonderful tongue-in-cheek humor so you don't feel like, you know, someone is just, you know, putting all the heavy stuff on you and trying to weigh you down. You'll understand better what's going on in terms of what's happening in medicine, energy, food, transportation, money, all of these things that are, that are shifting and changing. And, and it's, it's an excellent article, but you'll also find a few places where you're going to smile. But don't let, the, don't let the fact that occasionally you'll smile at the good citizens turn of phrase steer you away from the fact that this is really legitimate information. With the charts and graphs and the numbers crunched to, to back it up. So there's another one that I would recommend for for your enlightenment. Here's the one that I'd like to share with you, though, and this is uh, one that I hope brings just a little more uh, steel to your spine, a chance to, to strengthen your heart, you know, to give you courage. So many Americans have forgotten who they are at this point that the founding ideals of our nation actually sound like a foreign language to a lot of us. J.B. Shirk has an excellent article about uh, our situation. And he tells us that difficulty as well as opportunity lie ahead. Here's how he puts it. He says, in a recent YouGov Economist poll asking Americans to evaluate the likelihood of dire political scenarios occurring in the next decade, the results are bleak. 50% believe that it's at least somewhat likely that the United States will no longer be a global superpower. 47% believe there will be a total economic collapse. 40% believe that a civil war between Republicans and Democrats will commence. And when the measure of Americans who responded say that, uh, or responded that they were not sure or prefer not to say is added to those above percentages, 
you see a whopping 69%, 66%, and 60% of the American people fall on the spectrum between not sure and certain that tragedy will soon strike. So, so much for hope and change, huh? In another era, these numbers would have been big news that a majority or near majority of Americans not only believe that the United States is on the verge of some sort of collapse, but also that the final precipitating event for such a collapse is only years away. That should be a wake-up call for the permanent bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. And while the sclerotic ruling class engages in increased brinkmanship abroad with nuclear powers Russia and China, ordinary Americans at home are stockpiling food, fuel, water, and weapons for expected stormy days. Now, normally, a national government facing, facing such fracturing from its own ranks would immediately seek to forge unity and common national purpose among its own citizens. But instead, Joe Biden, his political enablers, and the state-run corporate press, retinues that filter the flow of publicly available information, have sought to further divide the nation by targeting half the country as potential domestic terrorists, deserving of persecution or imprisonment for their political beliefs. Now, appealing to a people's natural patriotic zeal is ordinarily a surefire way of cementing common cause among strangers. Alas, D.C.'s denizens abrasively disposed of anything so prosaic as patriotism long ago, first flirting with institutionalized disparagement of civilian love of country shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, and then outright abandoning patriotism as a civic virtue after the briefest of chivalric renaissances following the 9-11 attacks on American soil. So the permanent political class thrives not on unity, but rather on stoking endless civilian division. I mean, that's, that's right on the money. Likewise, common national purpose is useless for the corrupt cadre of agnostic Washington insiders and political saboteurs who seek to scuttle American sovereignty and rebuild upon its corpse the foundations of an international one-world government political state. Rallying around old glory is today frowned upon by a cynical and elitist Washington cabal committed not to America or Americans, but rather to the loyalty-bending directives handed down from the plutocratic emissaries of globalism's apologists. Wall Street's robber barons, the United Nations' proto-emperors, the military-industrial complex's mercenary henchmen, and the World Economic Forum's ruling Marxist estate. Not necessarily in that order. J.B. Shirk says, Breaking Americans' patriotic camaraderie and cleaving the nation into many small parts occurred neither overnight nor by accident. Record-high illegal immigration, society-killing crime rates, divisive school curricula that indoctrinate students with anti-Western worldviews while promoting race-based hate. These aren't random incidental policies promulgated by flighty, misguided social engineers operating from dim-witted haste. These are programs designed to destroy a nation from within its borders by undermining everything that once kept it whole. And to their ignominious credit, the devils sowing national division and reaping cultural self-hate have largely succeeded. Large swaths of the American population don't trust each other and find no kind of historic kinship linking them together as one people precisely because the permanent political nobility in D.C. chopped away at Americans' shared identity till it splintered into a thousand pieces. And they then threw the remaining scraps into a multicultural cultural wood chipper just to make sure the immolation of any unifying American ethos lay complete. He says, for three decades... 
The, po- the professional political class has dedicated its time and energy to denigrating America both at home and abroad while doing its business with and singing the praises of its erstwhile enemies under the banners of economic globalism and a rules-based international order. So the questions before us now are these. Now that D.C.'s parasitic political class has succeeded in coldly and meticulously dividing, undermining, and weakening America and her people, will the nationless Washington elites also succeed in remaking the United States into nothing more than another regional organ subservient to the international corporate oligarchs stretching their tentacles from the United Nations to the World Economic Forum and across oceans, continents, and once free nation states? Or will all of this self-inflicted American destruction end up producing unintended salubrious effects? That is to say, has the political ruling class slowly strangling America today sufficiently drained the American people of the quintessentially American spirit that time and again retrieved our ancestors from the brink of disaster and certain death? Or are we yet to see the kind of animating American resurgence that has beguiled so many of America's tormentors throughout the years? The answer to any of these questions depends upon whether Americans remember that real power rests with them, not their politicians. It depends on whether Americans remember that when united, very little slows them down. It depends on whether Americans reclaim the country's founding principles, despite protestations from those who've benefited from their abandonment. It depends on whether Americans find the strength and determination and courage to believe in themselves again. Ultimately, it depends on whether Americans remember why they stand for liberty and as a source of inspiration for an often dark and enslaved world. Difficulty may indeed lie ahead, he says, but then too, then so too does opportunity. So what happens next is far from certain, but J.B. Shirk says this much is true. When Americans remember who they are, nothing can stop them, and heaven help those foolish enough to get in the way. I needed that little kick in the seat of the pants to remind me that, uh, yeah, when we know who we are, when we actually remember, you know, from whence we came, we can do remarkable things. And I'm just going to throw this out there just because I feel like I need to. Part of remembering who we are is remembering that it was with a firm trust in divine providence that the founding generation secured our liberties and laid the foundations for where we are today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.